Hello, I'm Aaron McMullen, and you are listening to Mondo Christ Almighty, a podcast devoted to the frequently wild and weird and wonderful world of cinematic, or primarily cinematic, representations of Jesus Christ. This week, we are following the Star of the East right back to 1973, where... Fittingly, for this episode 5, we find five very different Jesus films and at least five very different Jesuses vying for our attention. For the most part, our focus will largely be trained on just one of those five films, a deeply heartfelt, humble and compassionate piece filmed on the fly in November 1971 at various locations throughout the Holy Land and in which we are presented with a number of loose, semi-improvised, mostly dialogue-free reenactments of episodes native to the Gospels. Connecting these scenes and often commenting directly upon them are a succession of songs which serve to bridge the many dramatic ellipses and to speak for characters who otherwise remain silent, and also an ongoing monologue incorporating a number of readings from the Old and New Testaments and a series of short exegeses and meditations thereon. These orations pound away at the very heart of the film, Uh, commanding proceedings from the very first moments and delivered with monumental gravitas and conviction by an inordinately charismatic Johnny Cash, for whom this film, The Gospel Road, A Story of Jesus, represented a profound expression of personal faith and the culmination of decades of spiritual searching that began in the New Deal colony of Dias, Arkansas, where the young Cash would lie awake at night, tormented by Pentecostal notions of hellfire and damnation, and which promised to destroy him on numerous occasions throughout the succeeding decades. The people that walked in the darkness Have seen a great light They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death Upon them hath the light shined bright For unto us a child is born Unto us a son is given And his name shall be called Wonderful So begins the Gospel Road, a story of Jesus Or, as it is sometimes known, a story of Jesus told and sung by Johnny Cash, a labor of love shot in Israel and financed by Cash himself, starring his wife, June Carter Cash, 
and a bunch of their mates and governed by his solemn proclamations. Proclamations that sound like they are emanating from the bellies of the mountains round about, uh, augmented by readings from a battered old Bible that he rolls up and rings like a dishcloth. Never a man spoke like this man. Never a man did the things on this earth that this man did. And his words were as beautiful as his miracles. Now come along with me in the footsteps of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John Told about Jesus on that gospel highway Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John Told about Jesus on that gospel road How his pillow was a stone Where he laid his head How the hungry five thousand on the hill would bed How the people came and listened to him Everything he said Walking down that gospel road There are at least three byways intersecting with the gospel road. Uh, to journey along any one of them is to position the film within one of three specific contexts. The first of them, uh, situating the gospel road within a biographical context, let's say, uh, allows us to view it through the prism of Johnny Cash's star persona and especially in light of the hugely transformative uh, spiritual awakening or re-awakening which presaged his eventual recovery from years of steady, unbroken substance abuse. Another enables us to frame the gospel road against the backdrop of the faltering revival of the Hollywood Jesus film that kicked off in the early years of the preceding decade. A third allows us to consider the gospel road as part of that glut of Jesus films appearing in 1973 alone. Of the five Jesus pictures released that year, four, including the gospel road itself, were dominated by song, three were proper bona fide musicals uh, replete with song and dance routines, Three were productions of American origin, whilst a fourth, P.A. Thomas's Jesus, was produced in India, and the fifth, Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain, was a sublimely surreal Mexican picture uh, inspired in its own wild way by Ascent of Mount Carmel by St. John of the Cross who we last heard from way back in Mondo Christ Almighty, episode 3. We will, in the course of this episode, travel along each of those byways. Uh, sometimes we'll maybe manage to travel two or even all three of them at once. But we will begin by setting out along the first. The byway that leads to the Gospel Road from the mouth of the gargantuan Nickajack Cave on the Tennessee River. For it was within that cave that in October of 1967, trampled to next to nothing by a decade spent battering relentlessly at the pills and the booze, Johnny Cash lay waiting for death to claim him. 
having crawled for three whole hours along Nickajack's labyrinthine network of subterranean passages, until he felt confident that he had gone far enough that no one would ever be able to find him, and until the darkness and the exhaustion finally overwhelmed him. Years later, he would say that, quote, the absolute lack of light was appropriate, for at that moment I was as far from God as I had ever been. My separation from him, the deepest and most ravaging of the various kinds of loneliness I'd felt over the years, seemed finally complete. A number of broadly contemporaneous events, uh, as documented in Cash's autobiographies and in the course of several candid interviews conducted throughout the following decades, and in his FBI file, uh, made accessible under the Freedom of Information Act and now widely available online, allow us to put this desperate episode in perspective. In 1965, uh, four years after having been arrested in Nashville during an absolutely stinking drunken blackout, and only a few months after having been arrested in Minden, Nevada, in the midst of yet another, Cash was arrested at the border in El Paso, Texas, on the considerably weightier charges of drug smuggling and concealment, having returned from Mexico in possession of no less than 688 dexedrine pills and 475 doses of the tranquilizer Equinil. Amazingly, he got away with a suspended sentence and a $2,000 fine. That same year, whilst on a fishing trip with his nephew, and under the influence of God alone knows what concoction of what, he unwittingly started a colossal forest fire that decimated 508 acres of Los Padres National Park in California and very nearly killed him in the process, almost realizing the grim fate that he had imagined for himself as he watched from the window of his bedroom as a child, waiting for the hellfire that was sure to come roaring through the darkness towards him at any moment. Depending on who happens to be telling the story, and the time of day at which the story is being told, the fire was either the result of sparks emitting from a faulty exhaust on Cash's camper van, which is the version of events he would recount for the courts, or it was the result of him starting a campfire whilst absolutely out of his guilt, uh, so far gone that he failed to notice when the flames began spreading ever outwards. Whatever the cause, the fire ended up burning the foliage off three mountains and driving off or killing 49 of the refuge's 53 endangered condors. Cash's response following his arrest was a less than ingratiating, I don't care about your damn yellow buzzards. The federal government, however, cared very much, enough to sue him for $125,000. It doubtless goes without saying that throughout this period, uh, Cash's addictions to amphetamines and barbiturates progressed at an alarming pelt, 
And whilst he had initially perceived these drugs as literal blessings bestowed upon him by God above, uh, not only gifting powerful highs, but also allowing him to keep pace with an increasingly hectic schedule of live performances and guest appearances and recording sessions, he eventually, and partly perhaps as a result of stimulant-induced psychosis, uh, a debilitating confection of delusions and hallucinations and paranoid notions that at risk of oversharing, I myself have endured for extended periods at different points in my life, came to the conclusion that his addictions were the work of a shower of demons with whom he would tussle and converse on a regular basis. In a 1973 interview, he revealed how, quote, I'd talk to the demons and they would talk back. They'd say, go on, John, take 20 more milligrams of dexedrine. And I'd say, yeah, but I've already had 40 today. And they'd answer, take 20 more. So I'd take them and then continue talking back and forth to the demons inside me. In the same interview, he recounted the details of one particularly chilling dialogue with these demons, uh, this unfolding in his truck as he glared at his own reflection in the rearview mirror. Quote, I put my hand over my face and peeped through my fingers at myself and said, let's kill us. And then I said, I can't be killed. I'm indestructible. Well, I looked myself right in the eye and said, I dare you to try. Try, he did, careering then down the side of a mountain at such phenomenal speed that the truck flipped over twice before crashing to a halt. Again, amazingly, he emerged with no more than a broken jawbone to contend with. A similar incident saw him arrested once again, uh, this time in Lafayette, Georgia, in 1967. Waking in his cell the following day, with no idea why he had been incarcerated, he was informed by one Sheriff Ralph Jones, who happened to be an avid fan of Johnny Cash's music, that he had been spied beating at the doors of people's houses after wrecking his jeep in the deep of the North Georgia woods. Echoing consciously or otherwise Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Jones said, I don't know where you think you got your talent from, but if you think it came from God, then you are sure wrecking the body he put it in. As Cash recalled it, the sheriff then presented him with a bag containing all that he had been in possession of at the time of his arrest, saying, here's your money, there's your dope, now get out of here and go kill yourself. You evidently want to, so there's your dope, go ahead and do it. At the time, Cash had insisted that the sheriff had it all wrong that he had no sort of death wish whatsoever and that he certainly wasn't trying to kill himself. But that very same month, he was crawling into the bowels of Nikajak Cave with no intention of ever re-emerging. 
As he lay there in the darkness, however, there came to him a moment of unexpected grace and revelation. Suddenly, out of nowhere, he was overcome with the sense that God was very much in that cave there with him, and he was soon host to what he would later recall as a sensation of utter peace, clarity and sobriety which brought with it an absolute certainty that whatever death he was for dying, and when, would be determined not by him, but by the Lord. And it was no more his time there and then than it was when, following the horrific accident involving an unguarded table saw that eventually claimed the life of his older brother, uh, a tragedy that provides the basis for uh, a particularly distasteful running gag in the spoof musical biopic Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, a 12-year-old Cash had pleaded with an angel that appeared before him on his porch that he might allow the two boys to switch places, that John might die the death, that Jack was slowly dying in hospital. The angel refused to entertain the switch. Miraculously, Cash managed to escape Nickajack Cave by following what he described as a sort of breeze that ushered him back towards the light, both literal and metaphorical. The following month, he made a triumphant return to the stage, performing sober for the first time in over a decade. His recovery was not, however, as neat and as tidy as the foregoing uh, might maybe suggest. Shortly after that experience in Nickajack Cave, he began receiving daily counseling sessions from Tennessee's Commissioner of Mental Health, psychiatrist Nat Winston, with whom Cash would later, for a very brief time, uh, form an unlikely songwriting partnership. According to Cash, Winston told him that he had seen many people in the same sort of state that he was in, and that frankly, shy of some sort of divine intervention, he didn't think that Cash had much of a chance. Sure enough, within days of his detox commencing, Cash was surreptitiously back on the pills, a fact that Winston clocked almost immediately. Accordingly, he told Cash that he knew he was putting on a performance, he knew that he wasn't anywhere near as well as he claimed to be, he knew that he certainly wasn't as sober as he claimed to be, and he knew that he was still stashing pills about the house. Cash was then presented with a harsh ultimatum. He could either grab whatever pills he still had hidden away and flush them down the toilet there and then, or he could keep them hidden away, necking them on the sly, and Winston would leave him to it. Cash opted to flush the stash. The 32 days and nights of subsequent withdrawals proved horrific, a wretched stretch of physical and mental agonies running the gamut from sleeplessness and terrible visions and crippling stomach pains to bursts of mania which would see Cash tearing up the house in a state of deranged desperation in pursuit of any pills that might still be hidden away beneath the floorboards or between the walls. 
Eventually, mercifully, the addiction broke, although Cash later admitted that he had, in the years that followed, turned again, of a rare occasion, to the odd upper or downer, albeit to nothing like the same extent, and with nothing like the same ferocity with which he was shoveling them into himself for most of the 1960s. Now comes the battle of light against darkness, when the devil would try to claim him as one of his own to keep him from his divine purpose. But as surely as he would lose, Jesus was that sure of his purpose in this world. But the devil tempted him. And he said, if you have the power of God, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus said, you can't live by bread alone. The devil said, follow me, Jesus. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And he showed him all the riches of the world, all the great kingdoms. Took him up on a high pinnacle. And he said, all the power of this has been given to me to give to you. If you'll follow me, Jesus. Jesus said, it is written, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall thy serve. Mm -hmm. But a click of our heels, and a whistle, and a rub at a certain sort of stone, and we have traversed a span of years to find Johnny Cash reprimanded yet again, this time by disgruntled television executives displeased with a comment he has made during an episode of The Johnny Cash Show, a star-studded variety spectacular debuting in 1969 and broadcast weekly on the ABC network, recorded at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, famous the whole world over as the home of the Grand Ole Opry, from which Cash himself was banned following a particularly destructive drunken performance in 1965. What has happened is that, whilst introducing a performance of a gospel song, uh, gospel music having featured prominently on the show since it first went to air, Cash has announced to his audience that he is, indeed, a Christian. It wasn't, he would go on to say, something I was driven to do by an urge to convert anybody or spread the word of the Lord. I did it because people kept asking me where I stood, and I thought I ought to make it clear that yes, I am a Christian. I sang those gospel songs on the show not just because I liked them as music, which I surely did, and definitely not because I wanted to appear holier than thou, but because they were part of my musical heritage, our musical heritage, and they were part of me. I meant what I was singing. The executives rebuked Cash for his announcements, uh, informing him that network television was no place for any sort of chat about God or Jesus. Cash apparently responded with a sharp, well, then you're producing the wrong man here, because gospel music, and the word gospel means the good news about Jesus Christ, is part of what I am and part of what I do. 
I don't cram anything down people's throats, but neither do I make any apologies for it. I'm not going to proselytize, but I'm not going to crawfish, and I'm not going to compromise. Of course, the only real surprise, as far as Cash's explicit on-air declaration of his Christian faith is concerned, is that it proved remotely surprising to anyone, ABC Network executives or anyone else. This is the same Johnny Cash who left Sun Records in 1958, largely because label head Sam Phillips, for whom Cash had produced some of his most famous and iconic and enduring recordings, wouldn't allow him the freedom to put out records with religious themes, with the sole exception of Belshazzar, uh, a song about the Old Testament Babylonian king recorded in Sun Studios in 1957. Cash began to include such songs on his albums immediately upon moving to Columbia Records, who issued his first proper unadulterated gospel album, Hymns by Johnny Cash, in 1959, barely a year after the contract was signed. A second album of gospel songs, Hymns from the Heart, followed in 1962, and in 1969 came the truly wonderful The Holy Land, which in retrospect, and without wishing to do it a disservice as a fantastic piece of work in its own right, now feels like something of a dry run for the gospel road. A concept album come travelogue recorded in and around Jerusalem and in which are interwoven a series of short monologues and field recordings and scripture adjacent narrative sketches and diaristic sorts of interludes with songs about the multiplicity of sacred sites scattered throughout the region and the many marvellous things that the Bible tells us went on there at one time or another. And John the Baptist preaching repentance down on the Jordan River, which we'll be seeing later on today, said, There's one coming after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. And the prophets had said, referring to this place right here, he shall be called a Nazarene. Yes, along the dusty road came the Nazarene. Baptized by John was a Nazarene. Preaching on the top of the mountain was a Nazarene. Followed by a multitude was a Nazarene. Tried and condemned, they laid their stripes on him. But like he said, back from the dead came the Nazarene. Between emerging from Nikajak Kiev and embarking upon the trip to Israel that resulted in the Holy Land, Cash became a very close friend of Dr. Billy Graham, the sporadically socially conscious Southern Baptist minister who preached inclusivity and condemned racial segregation and sectarianism with one side of his mouth whilst emboldening misogynists and homophobes with the other, and who had, 
long before he first appeared on Cash's doorstep, achieved international fame on the back of a number of mammoth evangelistic crusades kick-started in the 1940s. The story goes that by the late 1960s, uh, Graham's son, Franklin, was spiralling rapidly into drink and drug dependency, prompting his father to reach out to the newly sober Johnny Cash, who counted Franklin Graham among his fans. In the course of a long conversation in Cash's home, a meeting orchestrated in part by Bufford Ellington, the then governor of Tennessee, and in the course of which the idea of producing a feature film along the lines of the Gospel Road first began properly knitting together, Billy Graham revealed that he was having trouble reaching not only his son, but reaching young people in general, and that a big part of that disconnect had to do with the kinds of music those youngsters were hearing in church. Graham is often quoted as having said, the latest thing the kids can hear in the church is bringing in the sheaves and how great thou art. They hear nothing in the church house that they like. What his crusade was in dire need of, he believed, was the music of someone like Johnny Cash. And as far as that music's evangelistic potential was concerned, Cash's outlaw songs were for Graham as crucial as any compositions of an unequivocally religious bent. For in the context of Cash's repertoire, it was their proximity to the former that rendered the latter so breathtakingly vivid and vibrant and vital. So, though walking the line, as it were, uh, both spirit and faith at their full, living a life far removed from the life he had been living when he first sang the next white man that sees my face is gonna be a dead white man, Cash continued singing songs of senseless violence and disobedience and untrammeled lust and barren hopelessness with the same unassailable conviction and veracity that he had brought to the innumerable gospel songs he had performed whilst high as two tin flutes and indulging in any number of venials and mortals and up to his eyeballs in devils of all description. With all of that being said, and if we didn't know any better, we might be forgiven for wondering just how much more relevant to those youngsters the still relatively conservative sound of Johnny Cash might have been in a year that began with the Beatles' instantly iconic final performance on the roof of Apple headquarters and the release of Kick Out The Jams by MC5 and ended with the release of Led Zeppelin II and the chaos and violence at Altamont, which, along with the Tate LaBianca murders uh, of a few months prior, brought the peace and love and idealism of the 1960s to a crushing, crashing close. In such an atmosphere, and to a demographic that had only recently made superstars of Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Marvin Gaye, 
the music of Johnny Cash must surely have seemed as anachronistic as any number of Abide With Me's. But however out of time his music may have seemed to some in the year of Woodstock and Tommy and whatever else, although let's not forget this was also the era of the Flying Burrito Brothers and Sweetheart of the Rodeo and so on, Johnny Cash, unlike many other artists of his vintage and his genre, had, in fact, managed to retain and sustain credibility and cross-generational appeal throughout that period, despite the odd rumbly decision and the odd novelty record here or there, and had been embraced by the counterculture and by artists like Bob Dylan, with whom he recorded on several occasions, as a champion of the marginalised and downtrodden and oppressed and as a totem of authenticity and integrity whose anti-authoritarian, anti-establishment, fuck you, middle-fingered outlaw cool had largely remained intact and by the end of the decade had been cemented forevermore thanks to a pair of monumental live albums recorded in state prisons before crowds of convicted criminals and under the steady watch of increasingly anxious guards. 1968's At Folsom Prison, widely regarded the finest of the many, many dozens of albums that Johnny Cash produced in the course of his career, and the following year's Incendiary at San Quentin, the second side of which uh, famously opened with two consecutive performances of the blistering San Quentin itself. The first having been so rapturously and so raucously received by an audience that recognised Cash as very much one of their own. San Quentin, may you rot and burn in hell. May your walls fall and may I live to tell May all the world forget you ever stood And may all the world regret you did no good San Quentin, I hate every inch of you Speaking in 2002, Johnny Cash identified his heroes as, quote, the poor, the downtrodden, the sick, the disenfranchised, unquote. The prison records, uh, alongside the likes of, say, 1964's Bitter Tears, ballads of the American Indian, were testaments to that. Uh, they were hands and, crucially, ears extended to the despised and the damned by a performer with whom the breaking and the broken felt a thunderous kinship and whose righteous anger and distrust of institutional authority and empathy for the alienated and othered and excluded was inextricably bound with his Christian faith. Uh, faith that derived from a devotion to a knotted, 
complicated Christ who challenged and subverted, who disrupted and agitated at every turn, who radiated compassion for the vulnerable and who detested greed and exploitation. A Christ who deftly wove parables teeming over with threats of impending judgments whilst also despising the judges and warning judge not lest ye be judged. The Christ above all who said, Depart from me into everlasting fire, for I was hungered and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger and ye took me not in. Naked and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison and ye visited me not. And when they answered, saying, Lord, when saw thee hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee, he said, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. Now, with all of that said, uh, it is, I think, worth remembering that those prison albums remain, for some, deeply troubling propositions. Reviewing the reissued at San Quentin for Pitchfork in 2006, for example, Amanda Petrusic, whilst dubbing the album one of the most mesmerizing live records in American history, nonetheless acknowledged also the many, quote, ethical snafus inherent to the deed, unquote. It's easy to argue, she wrote, that Cash's decision to strum up a jail had as much to do with his own burgeoning mythology as anything else. The notion that Cash exploited the convict's plight to buy his own rep was, she asserted, difficult to dismiss. And it was easy also to sympathise with the families of the prisoner's victims who might not want to see their loved one's killer clapping his hands to a boy named Sue. Richard Beck, author of Trains, Jesus and Murder, the Gospel According to Johnny Cash, refers to Cash as a troubadour for the Anawim. Uh, a description of the man, or at least the man's mythos, as astutely observed as any were ever likely to come across. Present in certain books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew word anawim basically signifies the poor and the oppressed, strangers and foreigners, the persecuted and the abandoned, those who are suffering now, perhaps as a result of their faith, but who will, in the fullness of time, be exalted. Beck quotes Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the Anawim. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, 
This is the same verse that Jesus quotes in the course of the so-called Nazareth Manifesto, uh, a pedagogic dialogue appearing early in the Gospel of Luke, shot through with the same liberational rhetoric and the same message of hope for the hopeless that suffuses also, say, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the first of the five discourses of Matthew in which Psalm 37, the Anoim will inherit the land, is explicitly evoked. These are the sorts of discourses and dialogues that charge what Beck describes as the wild and unsystematic theology of Johnny Cash, a theology that reverberates throughout the whole of Cash's vast discography, um, from early compositions like Give My Love to Rose to apocalyptic dramas like The Man Comes Around, uh, the stunning centerpiece and title track of the final album he released in his lifetime. It is a theology shaped by Cash's encyclopedic knowledge of scripture, uh, nurtured by and nurturing of a fecund biblical imagination, pivoting around a veneration of the Anoim and constituting a complex and intriguing riot of currents and cross-currents. It is for Beck, a compelling and potent mix of apparent contradictions and clashes, incorporating both, quote, the fidelity and unfaithfulness in trying and failing to walk the line, the dance of light and darkness in the moral juxtapositions of gospel music and murder ballads, the man in black standing in solidarity with the sinners and the man coming around in apocalyptic judgment, unquote. In that pair of iconic prison albums released in the late 1960s, uh, Contradictions and Ethical Snafus and All, Beck discerns the purest and fullest expression of this theology. And it is with and against the likes of the prison albums, that we can and will read the Gospel Road, a story of Jesus, about the bones of which this theology is forever writhing. In 1971, 58 episodes into its run, The Johnny Cash Show was cancelled by ABC. Uh, not because of poor ratings or because of any disagreement about anything Cash might have said on air, but because the show had proven disproportionately popular among audiences situated in rural areas and so connected primarily with a demographic that neither the network nor the sponsors were remotely interested in courting. The cancellation was part of what became known as the Rural Purge, which saw a number of networks ditching shows that appealed primarily to rural audiences, or that reflected the experiences of rural audiences, uh, in favour of those which spoke to and of and for an urban or suburban viewership. 
the final episode of the Johnny Cash show premiered on ABC on the 31st of March 1971, roughly seven months before Cash arrived in Tel Aviv to begin shooting the Gospel Road with only a few notes mapping a loose sort of structure and a threadbare script to work from. In the interim, on the 9th of May 1971, Cash had approached the altar in Nashville's Evangel Temple to fall to his knees and announce his commitment to Jesus, uh, just as he had done some 30 odd years prior as a 12 year old boy in Arkansas, when, having reached the age of moral and spiritual accountability, as he would recall in the liner notes that accompanied the album Unchained in 1996, I walked down the aisle of the church and accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour, as the congregation sang the invitational hymn, Just As I Am. What happened during that service in Nashville, then, uh, was not demonstrative of any sort of radical conversion experience uh, of the sort that would, as the 70s wore on, lights upon the likes of Cat Stevens, say, uh, or the aforementioned Bob Dylan, but a formal indication of the reinvigorating of a Christian faith that Cash had never ceased to profess, but which had, over the course of the previous decade and change, been bruised and blunted and severely discoloured under the perpetual hammering of his addictions. It was this re-energised faith that Cash would carry with him to Israel, and it was in the heat of its light that the constituent parts of the Gospel Road A Story of Jesus would solidify and take form. And Jesus taught them, saying, If a man asks you to go a mile with him, go with him too. If a man asks for your coat, give him your cloak also. Don't turn away him that would borrow. But do your alms in secret, and your Father, which sees in secret, will reward you openly. Consider the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. As we heard at the outset of this episode, uh, the Gospel Road opens with the sound of Johnny Cash singing a close approximation of the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 9. The same verses that are quoted directly in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew over a series of shots tracing the steady rising of the sun, uh, one of a handful of allegorical visual motifs, uh, some more inventive and idiosyncratic than others, that recur throughout the picture. The importance of the book of Isaiah to the Gospel Road and to Cash himself can hardly be overstated. Its importance to Christianity can hardly be overstated. 
it is a book so influential upon and present within the Christologies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that a number of early theologians and church scholars actually considered it a fifth gospel. It not only foretells the coming of Christ, or at least provides a captivating context within which future authors could situate the coming of Christ, but it informs the political thrust of Christ's mission and provides a scriptural bedrock for his teachings and his deeds and his eventual, quote, wounding for our transgressions. And it is, after Psalms, the book of the Old Testament that is quoted most often in the New. Following this brief snatch of song, a little over a minute in length, Cash himself appears on screen, uh, shot from a low angle and against a sky of sprawling blue, clad in black as ever, looking and sounding like the whole of the world about him is his pulpit. The confidence and ease with which he commands both the frame and the words he utters is especially remarkable given that this Johnny Cash was only a very short distance removed from the Johnny Cash existing as a terrified, mangled mass of panic and self-hatred and paranoia. The one who had, in his own words, become afraid of everything, who would be a nervous wreck before a show, who was never sure of himself during a performance who didn't believe people when they said that things had gone all right. Although that Johnny Cash bears precious little resemblance uh, to the Johnny Cash that greets us here, that earlier incarnation cannot help but cast its shadow, and it is from under that shadow that the transformative, redemptive arc of the Gospel Road ultimately springs forth. Stood there, surveying the land and the water uh, over which the camera soars throughout the film, as if carried on the breath of the Holy Spirit itself, Cash intones, Down these paths have passed the feet of many, leaving footprints victim to the wind for the sands of time to cover. But there is one, he suggests, whose footprints neither the wind nor the sand could ever erase. That would be Jesus Christ, to whose footsteps and whose life and whose ministry and whose sacrifice the 80-odd minutes of the Gospel Road will be devoted. The desire of ages now had finally come Born to walk upon that gospel highway Born of a virgin down in Bethlehem Born to walk upon that gospel road And life would begin at the touch of his hand The people would listen to him throughout the land For never a man spoke like this man Walking down that gospel road Initially, uh, those footprints, those feet, 
where all of the Jesus that Cash and director and cinematographer Robert Elfstrom intended to show. It was extremely late in the day that they decided to visually represent the whole of their Jesus after all, leaving Elfstrom, who had no prior acting experience of any significance whatsoever, to take on the role of all roles himself with less than 24 hours to prepare. The task of portraying the boy Jesus, uh, who we see briefly early on, fell to Elfstrom's son. A version of the Gospel Road that realises that original vision, that keeps Christ more or less off-screen for the duration, uh, save for his feet, is in a way a fairly tantalising proposition. Uh, certainly such an approach would resolve the disjunct that is occasionally felt throughout the film, but not in the album released around the same time, which basically presents the entire soundtrack uh, with only minor alterations from beginning to end. Uh, songs and incidental music and narration and dialogue and all. The Christology suffusing the album is sometimes compromised in the film itself by the schism that exists between the Christ that Cash conjures with his words and his readings and his songs, a Christ that is a fury of love and rage and rebellion and fight, and the Jesus that Elfstrom inhabits, uh, a Jesus that from time to time can feel somewhat flat and flavourless and one-dimensional, when in effect uh, the schism is so pronounced that we can go so far as to say that there are actually two Jesuses scrabbling for dominance throughout the film. The narration and the songs prioritise a Christ whose anger and heart and commitment to social justice and intellectual ambidextrousness and fearlessness in the face of authority is never in question, and whose divinity is perpetually throbbing about his being. This is a Christ that doesn't always chime with the Jesus portrayed by Elfstrom, who is certainly given to anger and indignation, uh, fervently whipping at the animals tearing about the temple, for example, but who generally appears charged with very little in the way of the transcendental uh, and even less of the divine. When he first appears, blonde-haired and white-robed in the distance, advancing towards the Jordan River in soft focus, he doesn't inspire very much in the way of wonder. Rather, he just looks like he's vaguely annoyed at something, like the John the Baptist who awaits him has kept him up all night, uh, shouting drunkenly at his Xbox. Other times, he just seems a bit stoned, uh, wandering absently through the fields and the pastures, lost to reveries of whatever class, less Sermon on the Mount than Fool on the Hill. 
His demeanor is especially incongruous throughout the depiction of The Last Supper, uh, a point at which the disharmony between the Jesus we see uh, and the Christ that we hear tell of is as conspicuous as at any point in the film. Uh, the latter insisting that tomorrow he will set the captives free, the former barring a rub at his eyes, provoked by a quick flash forward to his crucifixion towards the end of the scene, otherwise giving no indication that any thoughts of any weight whatsoever are pressing upon him and largely appearing little bothered by anything very much. Simply put, this is not the dynamic, incorrigible, tireless a rebel and philosopher and object of boundless devotion that rips through the gospel road on record. The incorrigible, tireless rebel who rips through the film is not Elfstrom's Jesus, but the high-collared, black-clad Johnny Cash who contextualizes Elfstrom's scenes. Johnny Cash, uh, the friend of the prisoner and the forsaken, walking the banks of the Jordan in solidarity with the Anawim, crafting a Christ with language that frequently resonates with and reflects back upon his own star persona. Johnny Cash, who performs for murderers and thieves, and who will happily jeopardize a lucrative television career for the sake of a five-second declaration of his faith. Jesus was to suffer much criticism for his association with people of questionable character. He dines with publicans and sinners, they said. And to that Jesus replied, it's the sick that need a physician, not the healthy. To be fair, Elfstrom's turn is not without merit by any means, even if it is occasionally wanting for depth and nuance, and even if he sometimes appears to confuse surliness for gravitas. At times, uh, he's actually pretty impressive, uh, especially for someone with no prior acting experience. We must also keep in mind that Elfstrom's is a silent Jesus, uh, whose words, like most everyone else's, uh, barring John the Baptist, Nicodemus, and Mary Magdalene, who get a line or two of diegetic dialogue apiece, are spoken for him by Cash, a mode of performance that would surely prove challenging for anyone, whatever their experience. Similarly, uh, even the most garlanded and seasoned of professionals would have a hard time making much of an impression when competing with Johnny Cash at his most powerfully charismatic, uh, as he is throughout the gospel road. Even Kirk Douglas struggled uh, when pitched against Cash in 1971's a Gunfight, uh, a western notable for being the first film produced entirely by Native Americans, on behalf of whom Cash campaigned and advocated tirelessly throughout his career, and in which his formidable screen presence 
previously showcased in 1961's fairly unpleasant Five Minutes to Live, or Door to Door Maniac, as it was later known, blazes any time the camera fixes upon him. Given all of that, uh, the fact that Elfstrom registers at all, uh, let alone manages to shoulder the weight of the voiceover, to the extent that in certain scenes at least he does, is probably, I would think, victory enough. What Elfstrom's portrayal of Jesus also allows for are a series of really quite beautiful, uh, rather pastoral sorts of interludes, which he tackles as a director with a documentarian's intuition, a handful of charmingly understated representations of certain miracles, throughout many of which the focus puller appears to be working harder than anyone else on set, and a number of extremely striking scenes uh, characterized by a sharp visual minimalism, uh, which is largely, I suppose, born of necessity, but which engenders the inventive and playful and joyous experimentations in sound design and staging, and the occasional flashes of unexpected surrealism, which help render the Gospel Road as a whole so memorable and so strange and so endearing, and ultimately so much more than a period curio that just so happens to be possessed of an extraordinary soundtrack. For actually, the visual track is often every bit as arresting in its own way, and even that chasm, uh, born of a clashing of competing Christologies, uh, that sometimes yawns in the space between the oral and the visual, in certain ways, and from a certain perspective, serves only to render the piece so much more fascinating and substantial, insofar as it resonates with those contradictions, uh, sometimes seemingly irreconcilable contradictions, that we talked about earlier in relation to Johnny Cash and his theological framework. I mean, we could spend an age uh, imagining what a gospel road that kept Jesus off screen as much as possible, or that foregrounded a Jesus with a lot more Christ in his waters, might maybe have looked like. But running only with what we actually have, I would say that whatever Elfstrom's limitations as a screen Jesus, the film would in the end, be considerably impoverished and certainly much less interesting without him. Blasphemer, they'll call him, for saying that he's divine, the son of God in the flesh. But the mass of the people, especially the poor and underprivileged, followed him in such numbers that they walked on top of each other just to touch the hem of his garment. Among the more effective of the Gospel Road's many formal eccentricities is its isolation of Jesus within the mise-en-scene throughout certain scenes, uh, sometimes even scenes in which a whole bunch of stuff is going on, or in which his disciples 
or Mary Magdalene or the scribes or whoever seemed to be gathered about him in close proximity. Uh, throughout the second cleansing of the temple, for example, he is depicted alone and he wanders that temple alone immediately after, uh, kicking at the dust as Johnny Cash details the great bit of bother that this eruption of righteous anger has caused and the intensity of the questioning that it provokes. Isolating Jesus in this way, uh, keeping him at arm's length at certain moments from unfolding events and from the world in which these events unfold, not only underscores his fundamental cosmic remove from those around him, regardless of his feelings towards them, but also oftentimes lends an indisputable immediacy to the scenes in question and stirs a spectatorial engagement of a class that more conventional staging and framing might struggle to provoke. The device is utilized most successfully, for me at least, uh, in the scene depicting Jesus entering Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey, whilst the soundtrack erupts with the excitable clamoring of unseen multitudes, and as Cash talks of the succession of interrogations to which Christ would soon be subjected as a direct result of the ardor his arrival in the city inspires, the camera follows Elstrom's Jesus and his donkey as they proceed alone along empty streets, past houses seemingly void of inhabitants and gateways that open onto barren land, looking towards rooftops upon which stand nothing or no one, negotiating overgrown pathways under a vast cloudless sky. The soundtrack all the while flooding in to fill up spaces unoccupied within the frame itself. In his narration, uh, pulling from the 19th chapter of Luke, Cash speaks the words of Christ to his inquisitors. If the people remain quiet, the stones along the road will praise me. But in the absence of the people, though in the presence of their voices, the stones along the roads that Jesus travels here appear entirely indifferent to his presence. A careful few POV shots emphasize the imposing desolation of these roads as they stretch out towards the horizon, uh, POV shots redolent of those that bolstered Julian de Vivier's depiction of this same episode in 1935's Golgotha, as discussed at length in Mondo Christ Almighty episode 2, where de Vivier's POVs were characterized by a frantic, bustling mania, the braying masses barging into the shot from every conceivable angle, those in the Gospel Road capture an eerie still, suggesting the absolute and total separation of the condemned man wandering knowingly into the crosshairs of his execution, positioned at unfathomable remove from the world of things alive and breathing. 
a dejected, desperate loneliness as palpable here as in the likes of, say, Send a Picture of Mother as performed by Cash at Folsom Prison, where the pathos and poignancy of lines like Tell the folks back home I'll soon be coming and don't let them know I never will be free is overwhelming. Concerning some of his prophecies on his death, resurrection, and his second coming, the disciples ask him, Master, when will these things be? And Jesus said, Don't let any man deceive you. Many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, the Christ, and shall deceive many. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be troubled. For all these things must come to pass, and the end is not yet. And they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my sake. And many shall be offended and shall betray each other. Iniquity shall abound. Love of many good men shall wax cold. But he that endures to the end shall be saved. And Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. The trick is pulled another time uh, in the film's portrayal of the brutal treatment of Jesus by Roman soldiers in the run-up to his trial. A scene comprising a quick succession of shots in which Jesus is kicked and punched and spat on by what appears to be one actor assigned the responsibility of representing the soldiers as a whole and which again proceeds with recourse uh, to a soundtrack part comprised of the hollering of a bloodthirsty mob that is not represented visually. The din carries through into the depiction of the trials themselves, uh, all of which are pulled together and dealt with in a single scene. A scene which, again, rings a lot from very little. Uh, its particulars orbiting a static shot of three arches, within each of which is stood either Caiaphas, Herod Antipas, or Pilate. Three men, Cash explains, who represents all of his worldly opposition. Uh, each of them, for the most part, filmed from behind at a distance, Jesus wandering back and forth before them from one arch to another as he is addressed by each in turn. Before Caiaphas, the high priest, he is condemned. Before Pilate, who has the final authority, and before Herod, the puppet king. The crowd cries for his death. And in the face of authority, he never backs down. He answers, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. Here, as elsewhere, the film constructs a composite account of events stitched together from details drawn from all four of the canonical Gospels, uh, no two of which are ever entirely in agreement about the nature of the trials or about the specific ins and outs of the trials or about the result 
of the trials or why the trials even happened in the first place. Certain scenes appear here, but not there. In one gospel, so-and-so is present. In another, so-and-so is nowhere to be seen. Some say one thing happened then, another insists that it happened sometime else. Was Jesus interrogated on Passover or the day before? Did the interrogations take place in sunlight or in darkness? Was Herod actually involved in these interrogations at all? Luke maintains that he was, but if he was, then no one told Matthew, Mark or John. Did Pilate order the execution himself, uh, concerned about the extent of Christ's influence among Jews who perceived him as Messiah, Jews that he had allegedly uh, forbid from paying Roman taxes, and who would almost certainly join him in mounting an insurrection if things carried on as they were, or having authorized a bit of a flogging as a sort of goodwill gesture to the Jewish authorities, did Pilate then, upon receipt of further demands, throw his washed hands in the air, leaving the Jewish authorities uh, to take and do unto Jesus whatever they themselves felt had to be done? Did Pilate talk to Christ? And if he did, how often? John records two dialogues between the pair that are not mentioned anywhere else. In the Garden of Gethsemane, did an anguished Jesus collapse, as he does in the Synoptic Gospels, and indeed in the Gospel Road, overspilling with trepidation to such an extent that, according to Luke, his sweat ran as blood from his pores? Or did he, as John insists, maintain throughout the whole affair a courageous, unwavering commitment to a self-sacrifice that he strode towards with steadfast determination? In the Gospel Road, Christ is condemned on charges of blasphemy and sentenced by Pilate. And though he goes willingly to his death, he does not without sorrow or trembling. I stand on the stairway My back to the dungeon The doorway to freedom So close to my hand The voices around me Now bitterly down me For seeking salvation They don't understand Portions of that song you just heard, uh, The Burden of Freedom, which, like the film's title track and certain of its other songs, is fractured so that individual verses and choruses fade in and out throughout the film at appropriate moments, just as Jesus himself is frequently wandering in and out of focus, 
unfurl over images of Jesus being tormented by a group of soldiers. Throughout the scene, and in tandem with, for example, uh, the crown of thorns being placed on Christ's head, or the receipt of a particular kick or particular punch, a blast of jarring, nerve-jangling, distorted discordance delivers in turn an almighty blow to the song. These abrasive, violent, sonic incursions, present again in the kneeling of Christ to the cross, and in the despairing of Mary Magdalene and the disciples, are preserved on the soundtrack album, where, divorced from the visual track, and so seemingly unmotivated, the metallic discordance crashing into the song at irregular intervals serves to push it towards the fringes of the avant-garde, a country gospel song as conceived by a post-climate of hunter Scott Walker. Lord, help me to shoulder this burden of Before long, uh, Jesus is seen struggling and staggering and toppling to the dirt as he trudges with the cross through streets that again are empty, but along which he is hounded still by the disembodied baying of rabid multitudes. The scene alternates between images of Jesus grimacing against the cross and those underscoring his desertion, the camera pulling ever further backwards to reveal just how absolutely alone in this vast and arid and unfeeling landscape he truly is. As the scene reaches its close, Imagery from much earlier in the film punctuates proceedings, uh, juxtaposing the advance towards Golgotha, the preordained apogee of Christ's mission, with the advance towards the baptism in the waters of the Jordan that heralded that mission's commencement. Certain of the Gospel Road's defining formal features appear to betray the influence of Pierpaolo Pasolini's masterful 1964 production, The Gospel According to Matthew, a Jesus film by a queer, atheist, Marxist Catholic that many consider the finest Jesus film of them all. The pulsing of Pasolini's masterpiece is felt in uh, the Gospel Road's verite-like immediacy, uh, in its minimalist approach to the portrayal of miracles, in its understanding of the drama of faces captured in close-up, and its understanding of the drama of awesome landscapes, uh, as is most pronounced in such scenes as depict the temptations in the desert, or the grieving Jesus walking the hills as he mourns the death of John the Baptist. Well, John was later beheaded by the command of Herod. The voice from the wilderness silenced out of fear. 
the growing fear of the political leaders of the country, fear that was building into a storm that Jesus was going to face in all its fury down the road. When Jesus heard of John the Baptist's death, he went off into the wilderness and sadness for the man that had truly paved the way for his coming. John the Baptist, the lightning before the thunder, was gone. The Gospel Road's most audacious move, however, uh, is less suggestive of Pasolini than it is of Louis Bunuel. Uh, and specifically his short 1965 feature, Simon of the Desert, revolving around a number of frequently bizarre engagements uh, with a myriad of eccentric characters who have journeyed into the desert to converse with the titular ascetic, uh, the film's narrative appears for the most part to unfold in a time space roughly adjacent to that inhabited by the actual saint upon whose legend the film is loosely based, the 5th century Simeon of Syria, who did, so the chat goes, spend almost 40 years of his life living on top of a column in the wilderness. As the film reaches its finale, however, uh, this time space is unexpectedly whipped from below us when, following one of several conversations with Satan, an aeroplane crosses the sky over Simon's head. Suddenly, we are situated amidst the towering glass and steel of a modern-day city, staring the 1960s in the face. Uh, a 1960s that, for all we know, we may well have been occupying for the full of the film's three-quarters of an hour. A comparable maneuver uh, distinguishes the Gospel Road's depiction of the death of Christ, uh, a scene which provides us with some of the most transfixing and enduring imagery of not only this film, but of the Jesus film in general. What happens is that at the appointed moment, as his final breath prepares to issue from his lungs, the camera pulls back to reveal the crucified Jesus framed against a multiplicity of modern urban landscapes. It is a daring, provocative move that, rather uniquely, among the various turns of the Gospel Road, we are left to our own devices to decipher. And there are a number of ways in which we might go about doing that. To apply a somewhat reactionary eye to the scene, uh, we might discern a condemnation of the modern urban milieu, which in its hubris and secular self-interest continues to crucify Christ again and again whilst paying no heed whatsoever to his torment. Or we might interpret it, uh, as certain others have done, as a powerful affirmation that Christ's sacrifice is not something entangled in and inseparable from the fibres of its historical moments, but something that lives and breathes and speaks and saves even now and even here. 
a third mode of reading, uh, one that to some extent conflates the two, might perceive these images as rejoinders to those Christians quick to forget that there is a world around and about them, and that Christ is part of that world, and that Christianity must be part of that world also. For there exists in that world a suffering, invisible multitude who are lost and who are hungry and in darkness and starved of compassion and empathy. As Johnny Cash told Country Music Magazine in 1979, the churches are full but the slums and ghettos are still full and for the most part the churches and the needy haven't quite gotten together until more people realize the real needs of the people and go out rather than going in. I mean, to go into church is great, but to go out and put it all into action, that's where it's all at, and I haven't seen a lot of action. A fourth approach to the imagery might read it as a question. If the coming of Christ had seen him ministering to us here now, in the world that we all inhabit, with what would his words and deeds have been met? This is a question that carries through into the hugely affecting rendition of Jesus Was a Carpenter that brings the soundtrack album, but regrettably not the film, to a close. Would he stand today upon the sands of California and walk the sweating blacktop in New York or Mississippi? Where the mighty churches rise up high above the screaming cities. Could he walk among us with no ridicule or hatred? Would he be a guest on Sunday, a vagrant on a Monday? Would we lock our doors against his kind today? In 1972, Billy Graham acquired the rights to screen The Gospel Road in churches, but it wasn't until March of the following year that it appeared in mainstream theatres, uh, distributed by 20th Century Fox. Debuting in cinemas that same month was David Green's adaptation of Stephen Schwartz and John Michael Tabalak's off-Broadway sensation Godspell, uh, billed variously as a musical based on the gospel according to St. Matthew and the gospel according to today, uh, a film which also invited audiences, as momentarily did the gospel road, to engage with and ponder a Jesus situated within a modern urban environment. A mere three months after Godspell came the release of Norman Jewison's well-received adaptation of Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber's phenomenally successful rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar, which had first entered the public consciousness in 1970 as a mega-selling and fairly controversial concept album before making its transition to the Broadway stage the following year. 
there are a number of surface similarities uniting these three films, uh, not least the extent to which all three are both outgrowths from and reactions to the then fairly recent and largely unsuccessful attempts at reviving the Hollywood Jesus film inaugurated by the release of Nicholas Ray's overstuffed and not especially gospel conversant King of Kings in 1961, the first proper full-on Jesus film to be produced by a Hollywood studio since Cecil B. DeMille's entirely unrelated The King of Kings in 1927, although studio director Frank R. Strayer's The Pilgrimage Play, boasting the first talking Jesus to be filmed in colour, had been independently produced in the interim. The venture soon buckled with the commercial failure of George Stevens's uh, actually pretty great, but also ludicrously sybaritic, The Greatest Story Ever Told in 1965, uh, another epic spectacular in the tradition of the biblical colossus which Stevens began shooting in three-camera Cinerama before transitioning to the even grander Panavision 70 midway through production, and which for the first month of its initial run clocked in at almost four hours, before a number of cuts demanded by the studio ahead of a wider release saw it trimmed to a very slightly more palatable three hours and 17 minutes. The greatest story ever told is a magnificent picture. Stunningly rendered for the screen. A monumental film. It may run for 40 years. The greatest story ever told could be the most majestic production the screen will ever have. One of the greatest motion pictures yet made. Pictorially magnificent. A classic, timeless picture. I send my messenger who shall prepare the way. Listen to the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In his book Imaging the Divine, Jesus and Christ Figures in Film, an indignant Lloyd Bow lays into both King of Kings and the greatest story ever told with savage aplomb although the bulk of his ire is reserved for the former. Uh, Nicholas Ray is thoroughly chastised for his film's uh, sanitized, domesticated approach, for its many deviations from scripture, for its marginalizing of crucial components of the canonical gospels, uh, crucial both narratively and Christologically, in favor of pointless contrivances and subplots invented by the filmmakers themselves, uh, including some massively expensive and for Bao utterly superfluous battle scenes, uh, for the manner in which it, quote, generally skirts the issue of Jesus' prophetic messiahship 
and decisively avoids the issue of Jesus' divinity, unquote, for the tackiness of its unconvincing portrayal of the resurrection, for its distracting melodramatic score, and for its focus upon the relationship between Jesus and his mother, which Bao dismisses as simply annoying. To be honest, uh, many of those things are, for me, the very things that render the film so interesting and worthwhile. In any case, uh, viewed in light of these monumentally indulgent productions, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, Godspell and The Gospel Road can each be said to be characterized in part by a pronounced iconoclasm. An iconoclasm which takes aim not only at the tradition of the Hollywood Jesus, famously depicted in Godspell as a clown in a Superman shirt and red braces, but also at the extravagance and decadence and self-importance of those epic, sanctimonious, big-budget productions of the preceding decade. Indicative of this iconoclastic bent, uh, I think, are the opening and closing moments of Jesus Christ Superstar, which kicks off with a surprising Brechtian flourish that sees the cast members packed into a bus with a cross and various other bits and pieces tied to the roof, arriving at the filming location in civilian garb before disembarking to begin distributing props about the set and donning costumes in anticipation of the commencement of the narrative proper. The film concludes with those same cast members, barring some conspicuous omissions, shedding those same costumes and climbing back onto that same bus, uh, a move that anticipates the final moments of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, released a couple years later, and also recalls the close of another of 1973's Jesus Pictures, Jodorowsky's aforementioned The Holy Mountain, released the month before. Descending from and engaging with a tradition of bloated, self-satisfied Hollywood biblical epics that went out of their way to announce their significance and their fidelity to scripture, whether that claim stood up to scrutiny or not, uh, and which prided themselves on their elevation above ordinary films, on ordinary topics, the opening and closing scenes of Jesus Christ Superstar, giddily and proudly announcing the artificiality of proceedings, prove pleasingly refreshing and impudent and quietly subversive, uh, even if the device itself has since become fairly tired. Saying that, uh, these films do, at times, hark back to those earlier biblical epics uh, in ways that are somewhat more respectful. The Gospel Road's treatment of the He Without Sin episode, for example, uh, during which Jesus, under the scrutiny of the temple authorities, intervenes in the stoning of a woman accused of adultery, is as Matt Page also observed in a review published on his excellent Bible Films blog, a direct echo 
of DeMille's depiction of the same scene in The King of Kings. And they brought a woman into the temple and they said, Master, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. What do you say should be done with her? Jesus' back was against the wall now. The Pharisees are trying to trap him with a question. So far as they know, any answer he gives is a wrong answer. If he says, forgive this woman, he's going against the law. Yet on the other hand, if he says, stone this woman, it's a direct contradiction of all his teachings of love and compassion, understanding and forgiveness. So Jesus says, he without sin cast the first stone. And then Jesus started writing in the sand. And it's not really known what he wrote, but maybe he was writing things like liar, hypocrite, thief, rapist, murderer. And then Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, no man here, Lord. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Though it leans heavily upon its abundance of songs, and allow their colouring of certain scenes and explication of certain others, uh, render those songs indispensable to the advancement of the film's narrative, uh, and in fact, many of them were written or chosen for inclusion only in post-production, when it was discovered that much of what Cash and Elfstrom had brought back from Israel uh, struggled to speak with very much coherence, the Gospel Road, nonetheless, uh, is clearly not a musical uh, in the way that Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell are musicals. Uh, its songs, though essential, remain non-diegetic throughout. Uh, the film does not adhere to what Steve Neal would refer to as the regime of verisimilitude common to the musical, whereas Jesus Christ Superstar, Godspell, and, albeit in a very different context, P.A. Thomas's Jesus, the Indian picture I mentioned at the outset, and which we will talk about properly uh, in a future episode, most certainly do. Now, clearly, I have little way of knowing how familiar you might be uh, with Steve Neal's work on genre or his application of terms like regimes of verisimilitude or anything else. Um, but if those are things that you are not overly familiar with, and with my apologies if you are, uh, the regimes of verisimilitude that he talks about are bound up with his assertion that genre denotes not only a certain sort of film, or a certain body of films, but also the relation between the laws governing the world in which the narratives of those films unfold, and the laws of the world outside the film as inhabited by the spectator. Beyond that, these regimes also determine an audience's response to the things that are happening within the world of the film, uh, and their acceptance of those things. 
these systems of expectation and hypothesis on the spectator's behalf, uh, coiled about notions of plausibility and authenticity, ultimately, Neil explains, quote, provide spectators with means of recognition and understanding. They help render films and the elements within them intelligible and therefore explicable. They offer a way of working out the significance of what is happening on the screen, a way of working out why particular events and actions are taking place, why the characters are dressed the way they are, why they look, speak and behave the way they do, and so on. Unquote. These regimes obviously uh, vary from genre to genre. Uh, bursting into song, he writes, is appropriate, therefore probable, therefore intelligible, therefore believable in a musical, less so in a thriller or a war film. As such, these regimes entail rules, norms and laws. Singing in a musical is not just a probability, it is a necessity. It is not just likely to occur, it is bound to. With an eye on Todorov's The Origin of Genres, Neil breaks this down further. There are, he says, two broad types of verisimilitude applicable to representations. The first is generic verisimilitude, uh, how closely a given film adheres to or transgresses the rules of its genre. The second is what he talks about as social or cultural verisimilitude, which has to do with how closely a given film or type of film uh, adheres to or transgresses the rules and expectations of the cue massive scare quotes uh, real world uh, from which it emerges and to which it is addressed. Obviously, uh, genres can and do intersect with other and bleed over other at all sorts of junctures in all sorts of ways. As I said a way back in the very first episode of this podcast, the elasticity of the Jesus film in this respect, uh, the genre hopping that is characteristic of a film like The Gospel Road or Ray's King of Kings or The Passion of the Christ or whatever, does not in itself make the Jesus film in any way unique. But what does set it apart is that Whilst any given Jesus film may inhabit any number of genres at any given time, it will, more than likely, occupy these spaces whilst retaining and indeed foregrounding a very specific set of iconographic, thematic, philosophical and narratological components. In any case, uh, The Gospel Road clearly fulfills our expectations as far as Jesus films go, but it doesn't behave very much at all like a capital M musical. In an upcoming episode, uh, we will carry on poking around genre and exploring the porosity of genre boundaries and distinctions 
as we look at the ways in which certain horror films, uh, by which I mean horror films of secular origin that serve no evangelistic purpose, uh, so distinct from the evangelical prophecy horrors uh, that we looked at in episode 4, have made potent use of portrayals or images of Jesus and likewise how certain Jesus films have made potent use of the grammar of horror. Anyway, in 1990, uh, four years after the publication of his first and only novel, The Man in White, about the life of the Apostle Paul, with his career in as deplorable a state as it had been in at any time since he first set foot in Sun Studios near four decades prior, reeling from a string of consecutive commercial misfires that saw him dropped by Columbia Records after 26 years, Cash and June Carter Cash visited Israel another time, uh, this jaunt resulting in return to the promised land, a micro-budgeted 45-minute-long semi-sequel to The Gospel Road, although really it feels far more like a belated addendum to The Holy Land, uh, originally intended for television broadcast uh, as part of the Easter programming schedule, but instead released direct to VHS by Billy Graham's Worldwide Pictures in 1992. The soundtrack album, uh, interweaving spoken word and song after the fashion of The Holy Land and The Gospel Road and the various other concept albums that Cash had issued uh, since first experimenting with the form in 1960's Ride This Train, finally appeared eight years later, uh, by which point Cash had, quite unexpectedly, regained his footing and was enjoying an extraordinary late career renaissance, uh, heralded by a celebrated feature on U2's 1993 album Zuropa and bursting into full bloom on the back of the remarkably fructuous uh, collaborations with producer Rick Rubin that resulted in the bold, critically acclaimed legacy enshrining American Recordings series of albums, uh, the first of which was released in 1994 and the last of which, or the last at the time of this recording, at any rate, was released posthumously in 2010. In the widely lauded video for the cover of Hurt by Nine Inch Nails, that featured on the fourth American Recordings album released in 2002, one year before Cash's death and two years before the Christian publisher Thomas Nelson would release a 19-hour-long recording of Cash reading the entirety of the New Testament, footage from The Gospel Road uh, appeared alongside other snatches of archive material spanning a number of decades and scenes that captured both Cash and his wife in their home shortly before their passing. Whilst plenty of films, uh, including the relatively recent likes of Albert Nader's 2006 feature Where Jesus Walked, 
or 2010's The Jesus Diaries, both of which were shot on location in the Holy Lands, uh, both of which revolve around a blend of travelogue-style documentary materials and reconstructions of certain episodes from the Gospels, uh, have drawn liberally from the template established by Cash and Elstrom, the Gospel Road itself remains largely underseen and underrated. In his book Screen Jesus, portrayals of Christ in television and film, for example, uh, Peter Malone devotes four whole pages to Godspell and six to Jewison's Jesus Christ Superstar, but affords the Gospel Road only a meagre few sentences amounting to little more than a footnote. Adding insult to injury, he identifies the year of release as 1976, uh, some three years after it actually appeared in cinemas and four after it first screened in churches. Other notable books on the subject, uh, Lloyd Bow's Imaging the Divine, for example, uh, as cited earlier, or Richard Walsh's Reading the Gospels in the Dark, portrayals of Jesus in film, don't consider the Gospel Road worth mentioning at all. Surprisingly, however, uh, it did feature in an otherwise painfully predictable list of the top 10 Jesus films ever published by Time magazine in April 2009, taking its rightful place, for a moment at least, alongside your Jesus of Nazareth and Lives of Brian and Last Temptations. And it is there in its rightful place, that we will leave it for now. I'm Aaron McMullen, and this has been Mondo Christ Almighty. If you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, and you're using sites or apps that allow you to follow or subscribe or whatever, uh, please do so. If you'd like to leave a wee review or give it a wee star rating or something like this, uh, that would be really appreciated also. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at MondoChrist. You can email me at MondoChristAlmighty at gmail.com and you can poke about the website uh, MondoChristAlmighty.com where I publish in tandem with the release of each episode a series of bibliographies, filmographies, links to relevant articles or other web resources, uh, all that kind of stuff. I aim to get new episodes out into the world uh, every two or three weeks or thereabouts, um, but sometimes, like this time, it can take a wee bit longer. But generally, Mondo Christ Almighty episode next is never all that very far away. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Praise and joy for praise.